0: live hello, this is William Fink and this is christgenness Saturdays today is saturday may eleventh two thousand and thirteen Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening tonight is um Tonight is part 20 of our series addressing the Paul Bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. After tonight, there will be probably two more segments on Douglas' material. And then later this spring or perhaps in early summer, there will be other Paul Basher segments addressing, well, other Paul Bashers. W.G. Finlay is, is one on the list. Scott McClade is another one. There's several other clowns. I don't know if we'll address them or not, but we are going to continue the series at diverse times in the future. Here we shall commence with our address of Douglass' second Paul-bashing article entitled, Saul of Tarsus and his Doctrine of Lawlessness, which he published in the January 2004 edition of his free American News magazine. Douglas, while attempting to discredit Paul of Tarsus, instead consistently discredits his own person by making all sorts of false accusations and inconsistent statements. And while claiming to be a Christian, he even rejects the cardinal tenets of Christianity found throughout the prophets and confirmed by the Gospels, that Yahshua Christ was indeed the Messiah and the Redeemer of our Adamic race. While in this second article, Douglas often merely repackages the trash he spewed in the first article, which we hope to have already discussed sufficiently, he does add new twists and additional claims as he proceeds. And so the second article, like his first, must also be addressed in its entirety. This material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clipton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, letter number 104. Which was published in December of 2006. Tonight, once again, I have Sword Brethren with me to 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 assist in our critique of Clayton Douglas's critiques. Hello. Hello, Brian.
1: Well, it just gets better.
0: Praise Yahweh.
1: In in the last
0: segment, we confronted more of Douglas's abuses of the Dead Sea Scrolls and his lies concerning Paul in reference to them. Here, once again, we see Douglas revert to fabricating the plot. To the concorded novel he has been developing throughout his articles.
1: Right. Reference 61A, Douglas states, Paul of Tarsus was an agent and spy of both the Roman state and these ultra-fundamentalist hypocrite sects, Edomite Pharisees. Well, I'm wondering, supposedly Paul was a Roman soldier, not just a soldier, but an officer. He deserted the legion. He's a Pharisee, but now he's a spy for the Pharisees. Well, it'd be kind of hard to be a spy for the KGB if you're publicly a member of the KGB and everybody and their brother knew Paul was a Pharisee. He was a public, well-known Pharisee. He wasn't some spy for the Pharisees. He never tried to disguise that he was a Pharisee.
0: Never. Never. Publicly professed that he was a Pharisee. Which was simply a a, a political sect in Judea. It it was all of the the men who wanted a voice in, in, in the public um, circle or circus and, and and wanted a political say in in the nation of Judea at the time belonged to one of the parties now, now in in a state that 's supposed to be a theocracy, the parties are based along theological lines in 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 America, we have a secular democracy and and the parties are based along secular lines, being a Pharisee. It is tantamount to being a, a Republican here in America today. Being a Sadducee is tantamount to being a Democrat. It, it's it's simply a, a sect w- which promotes a certain view of government and scriptures and and the things that ruled over those people at that time. Being an Essene would be like being perhaps a you know a, a Libertarian. Not, well, well, not really ideologically but but in a sense that it was the grassroots of, of, of the poli- political system at the time
1: right well douglas offers no proof that paul was any sort of secret agent so he's gone from a Roman soldier to a Roman officer a, Rom- a deserter from the legion now he's an agent and a spy what was he an official member of the frumentare
0: well well right it, it's douglas offers no citations he just throws these accusations out there, developing the plot to his novel, and, and there's no substance behind them whatsoever. That There's not one citation. Uh, I mean, it, it's people, you know, people, ignorant people. Ignorant people do not realize how much literature is out there, which is available on any one topic, Unless you actually study the field, and there are are, the works survive from hundreds of writers of the earliest Christian writers, second century, third century A.D. That there, and and not one of them ever um, ever really disdained Paul of Tarsus. Even the the, the staunchest critics uh, of um, Scripture embraced Paul of Tarsus. Mar- Marcion, the Marcionites, the Nestorians, all, all of the different sects embraced Paul of Tarsus, except the Jews. Now, in, in a tremendous body of literature called the Ante-Nicene Fathers by mainstream theologians who, who study these things, you know, A lot of people might say, well, well, that literature is a conspiracy, or or that literature is the church literature, the, the church manufactured that literature. And the truth of the matter is that those arguments are also just as ignorant and just as ridiculous, because if you actually read that literature, much of it doesn't agree at all with what the Roman Catholic Church was all about. Now, you would think that if the church had manufactured the literature, that the literature would substantiate the the, um, the, the foundations of the Roman Catholic Church, right? I, I mean, that, that would only make sense, and of course the literature does not substantiate what we know later became the Roman Catholic Church. So the church didn't create the literature, and none of that literature contains anything like the pictures that, that um, the, the Paul Bashers painted of Paul of Tarsus.
1: Well, they, they've, they've established nothing about his supposed background with the Romans. So we're to accept on face value and just blindly agree with their claim that he was not only in the Roman military, he was a, an officer in the Roman legion, and not only that, but a deserter, and then they still employ him as a spy and a trusted intelligence asset, and he's a covert agent working with the Pharisees while he actually is an open public Pharisee. Well, well, when I write
0: articles about ancient history, and and I make statements, I usually have what's called a citation attached to the statements, right? If I say that Josephus was an Essene, and he was, he was an Essene for three years, I'm going to have the appropriate citation from his book, his autobiographical work called Life, which life of Flavius Josephus, and, and and the chapter and the paragraph, right? The, right. And, and that scholarship. It it's Josephus was an, an Essene for three years, and, and here's the work where I got this, the writing of Josephus and here's the chapter and here's
1: the paragraph. Right. I mean if you're if we're discussing religion at that time it'd be nice to have one or two scriptural religious authority sources, and then maybe one or two secular historian sources.
0: Well, well yeah, yeah, whatever, what, whatever. It, it's um, Right, but what, you, what, the what point they, is you, you need
1: at least one source yeah. of some sort. It can't just be conjecture and, ooh, I want this guy to be a, a deserter from the Roman legion, so I'm just going to make the claim that he was a deserter from a Roman legion, and I'll just really hope to hell that no one calls me on it.
0: Well, well right, that's a novel. He, he's here, here, we, here, here,
1: here, here we are calling him on it. I mean, th- this would be a, a great storyline for a comic book, but for a supposedly scholarly journal where he's writing about a theological issue and he's writing about history and archaeology, there's no scholarship to this.
0: Not, none whatsoever. And, and as you said, he, he, you know, previously um, Paul was a Roman soldier assigned to spying on all of the sects of Judea. That was Douglass' first spin in, in his articles. So he, in his first article... And we discussed this in in the first segments of our Address of Clayton Douglas's first article. Douglas asserted, and that's in sections 12, 13, and 14 of William Fink versus the Paul bashers, that Douglas asserted that Paul was a Roman soldier who had a specific assignment to spy on all the religious sects in Judea. Now Douglas has basically um, turned his plot 180 degrees. Is Paul a double agent now, or, or, well, or is he a Pharisee spying on the Romans? Or, what, what's going on here? It, it's, we're,
1: we're to believe, though, that let, let, let's say I'm in the Army, and I desert and go AWOL. Four or five months later, Army Intelligence knocks on my door, and they say, we think you're reliable enough to come work for Army Intelligence as a spy. You know, um, Never mind, you, you ran away and deserted the Army. We'll just forget that and overlook that. Come work with us. I don't think the Romans are going to come to Paul and say, hey, you deserted your command as a centurion, you abandoned the legion, but now we want to employ you as a spy because we're, we're sure that that'll work out where the, the legion work didn't work out, but we trust you're reliable and loyal enough to be a good spy.
0: It's The whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, but my, my point is that Douglass can't keep his plot straight. He's developing what's basically a novel, and he, he, he can't keep the plot straight. He
1: right, well, it's like a bad soap opera.
0: He can't tell consistent lies.
1: It's a bad soap opera, and at some point maybe we're going to realize this is all just a dream episode, or a coma dream, or however it works.
0: Now now this next charge is really absurd, because it—it's again, there's no substantiation for it, but on the other hand, it it directly contradicts the, the biblical account concerning the stoning of Stephen.
1: Well, not only is there no substantiation, there can't be any substantiation because it didn't happen.
0: Well, well right. Douglas states that Paul was also an active, an active conspirator in the, the assault on Stephen in, in Acts 7.58. How,
1: how would Douglas know this?
0: The record in Acts 7.58 and in Acts 8.1 shows clearly that Paul was only a passive observer in Stephen's death. And and there was no conspiracy against Stephen. It it was rather... um, It it can be told from the account that certain people were simply inflamed by Stephen's words and decided to stone him at at that point. It it was a a rather... um, It it wasn't a planned event. It, It was... I'm missing the word that I'm trying to come up with, right? I'm sorry. But but it was rather impromptu. That's not the word I wanted, but it, it'll do. the, the um, Paul merely kept the garments of the men perpetrating the acts against Stephen. That's all he did. He washed their garments. In in the ancient world, when you undertook any physical activity, you, you, and, and there's evidence of this in the Last Supper, in, in John chapter 13, where Christ was going to wash the feet of the apostles, he removed his robes and girded himself with a towel because clothing was, um, because clothing was dear and, and most people did not have a lot of clothing. They took care not to soil it in, in labor. So, so these men took their garments off and, and went to Stone Stephen. And Paul only watched their garments. He wasn't an active participant. He, he's not without guilt in the matter. He admitted guilt in the matter. But he's right. not an active participant.
1: I'm sure Douglas is gonna claim that Paul did much more than he admitted to in acts. But Paul's a liar and Acts, is isn't to be trusted, where they basically discard all of the um the acts. But well, Douglas... well, if Acts
0: is not to be trusted, then you cannot raise the issue of the stoning of Stephen because the book of Acts is the only place it's recorded.
1: So generally from Douglas's perspective, unless there's something in Acts that we can use to point to Paul and say, look, he's remotely linked to this murder, he's linked to this, he admitted to this, he was here, the book of Acts gets thrown out unless it's going to be used to disparage Paul.
0: Well, well right, and, 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 and that's patently unjust. There are other records of the stoning of Stephen in the early Christian writers, and they are all copied from the book of Acts.
1: The right, Book of right. Acts
0: is the only record of the stoning of Stephen. It's the only if, original record.
1: If Douglas does not accept the Book of Acts as valid, then it can't be used for any purpose.
0: It can't or be. Well, right, but Douglas is a hypocrite. It's that simple.
1: So if the book is invalid, then he shouldn't be quoting it at all, unless he's quoting it to show how it's invalid. But he's already made it clear he thinks Paul is a liar, yet he's quoting Paul's own words to try and twist them and condemn him.
0: And, and Douglas is actually the liar.
1: Right. So if you believe someone's a liar, why would you quote them to make
0: a case? Well, well right. If, if you think the... Um, well, it, it's the same as all the fools that think the Bible's a fairy tale and then they go around quoting it to, to make cases all the time. Right. If, if you think that a book is illegitimate, you you don't quote the book to, to make um, points for your own argument if the book's illegitimate. If, right. if you're criticizing the book, that's one thing. But but Douglas's He's really doing both. He's criticizing it on one hand, and then on the other, he's quoting it to make points, conducive to his argument, and he's lying about what the book says. The book's an authority or the book's not an authority. If the book is not an authority, then don't discuss the stoning of Stephen at all, because there's no other authority for the stoning of Stephen. It's not like you, you could say, well, this book's wrong. I have this one over here that was written by so-and-so in the first century, and, and, and he says something different. That would be a different story if a, competing, if a competing record existed. But in this case, no competing record exists.
1: Right, but they basically want to say this book is garbage, don't listen to this book, but, oh, we're going to take four pages out of this book and we're going to use it to make a case against this guy over here.
0: Right. It, it's patently unjust and it's hypocritical.
1: But we've come to expect this from Douglas. Well, well right. That, that's, that, that's scholarly
0: method. With Clayton Douglas, there is none. With the author of these articles, there is no honest academic method.
1: Well, I'd have to say, if I were a professor and somebody turned this in, I would just have to tell them that this is garbage. You get a zero. You're, you're failed on this. There's nothing scholarly about any of this, unless the class was, you know, creative writing, Or short stories 101.
0: How about creative lying?
1: (laughs) That is better. Closer to the truth. It captures the essence of what they're doing here. And like you said, you pointed out that in sections 12, 13, and 14, he painted a different vision of what Paul was up to. And now here we are on 61. He's hoping that people don't remember what he said on 12, 13, and 14, because now we're on 61, and that was, you know, 50 sections ago.
0: Well, it was a magazine issue and and 20 pages ago,
1: right. So he's just like a typical politician who will say, you know, um, go to Indianapolis and make a speech, and then two months later or two weeks later make a speech in Miami and hope that no one in Miami notices that all of his remarks are contradicted by what he said previously in Indianapolis.
0: Well, well, the average liar might be able to keep his lies straight for a couple of pages, but, I mean, the more you write, the more bound you are to trip yourself up. It, right. If you tell the truth, you never have to worry about what you've said before because truth is consistent.
1: You don't have to worry about keeping your lies consistent if you're telling the truth. Right. right. So, reference 62. Douglas states, In Acts nine twenty-two through 26, it is said that Paul baffled the Jews living in Damascus. But Paul increased more in strength and baffled the Jews who lived at Damascus, proving that this is the Christ. There were no people called Jews during this time period. In any event, this group wasn't the only group Paul had been trifling with over the centuries. Trifling with over the centuries? I didn't know Paul was that old. But to continue, to baffle, <laughs> to bewitch, and to deceive. So that is <laughs> pretty.
0: Good. That's pretty good. Paul's oh, been well, well, man, these... Paul is the liar of the day. <laughs> Because the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls had to be alive in the days of David and the days of
1: Micah. So maybe that was Paul. (laughs) So Paul's been trifling with these people for centuries.
0: Maybe he is as old as Miss He didn't tell us that.
1: (laughs) I I wonder, too, why is Douglas taking the opportunity now to claim that there were no people called Jews, yet he continually mentions Jews before and uses the word without objection? This is the first time he's objected that he used for the word Jew. Since you know there there was no word equivalent back then, we would just call them Edomites, I suppose. But well, well,
0: we would call them Judeans back then, right? Uh, right. We would call that they were Edomites by race, and they were called Edomites. You're right. Josephus called the, the Judeans Edomites. A, a good portion of the Judeans were called Edomites by Josephus, right. and, and Strabo tells us that Edomites and Israelites were both living in Palestine. So, so Edomites is a good term only if you know the ethnicity of the individual. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck calling that person a Judean, which is really after the the Roman... Um,
1: the nationality.
0: Because it wasn't really... Yeah, yeah right, you can term it a nationality in the political sense, but not in the correct racial sense.
1: Right, but these people now are in Damascus, so I would have to conclude there probably aren't many genuine white Israelite Judeans in Damascus that most of them are going to stay in the village they were born in and
0: they're well, not well, international no, there, there was a large population of real Judeans in Damascus oh that, right. they're really close that, that, that's in, in Damascus and in Caesarea in, in, in many cities in Syria That there was a large population of Judeans in Damascus there was constantly um, contention between the, the, the Syrians and the Judeans who, who were dwelling in Damascus
1: Right, Political. but now, Paul had not been trifling with these people for centuries because Paul wasn't that old. And,
0: well, well, of course, the book of Acts, going back to using the stoning of Stephen as a, um, as, as a veritable witness, in that account, Paul is called a young man, a youth, which means that he was definitely under 30 and may have been younger.
1: Well, maybe the other people writing that were eight or nine hundred, and Paul was four hundred. So relative to them, he's a young man.
0: I, I guess I, I don't know. He lived for centuries, according to Douglas here. That, that's,
1: I, I, I I'd like to get an explanation on that. Paul's been trifling with them for centuries.
0: Yeah, you know, I somehow don't think we're going to get that exclamation Brian.
1: And even if they'd written decades, it's still improper. <laughs> Now, the, um, I
0: don't know what, you know, I don't, I have Bible works here, but I only load a couple of different translations into it um, to work with, and, and they're usually the, the, the fairly conservative translations. I don't know what translation translates this verb. Um, Sugkuno is the verb. It literally means to pour together, right? That's what it means. It's, it's confound in the King James Version of the Bible. Douglas takes his verb, baffle. I don't know which translation he got that from. In the King James Version, the verb is confound, and that's also how it is in the Christogynian New Testament. And he not only blatantly um, misdefines the word, but he also does so after abusing its context. Now, let me read the passage. Paul's in... Um, This is shortly after the road to Damascus event, and Acts 9.22 says, but still more, Saul, um, I'll read the Christianity New Testament version, but still more was, Saul strengthened and confounded the Judeans who were dwelling in Damascus, instructing that this man is the Christ. Well, he was persecuting, a short time before this, he was persecuting the Judeans in Damascus, because they were following this, what he considered a wayward sect. They were following this sect of of the Nazorians, sect of the Nazarenes, it was called. He was following after Christ that these people, and and they were being persecuted. Paul was their persecutor. And, And now he's teaching Christianity. That's why they were confounded, right? They weren't baffled. They were confounded. They had every right to be confounded, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, it's like the, the government coming to you and telling you that now you could keep all your guns, right? And, and yesterday they wanted to take them away. Well, what, what you're going to figure, well, what are they up to? You, you know, and 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 the, the confounding must have been honest because it's explained. It's explained from a very honest perspective, right? In the Book of Acts, right? In the records. that that Luke didn't try to conceal anything here. He's admitting that these people in Damascus were confounded by Paul's behavior, that they weren't baffled, that the um the word confound does not mean to bewitch or to deceive and and that's how Douglas is defining the word, right? To to bewitch or deceive. The word confound does not mean that. The word baffled doesn't really mean that. And, And um the, the word baffle is to frustrate or check a person by confusing or perplexing. So Douglas doesn't even know English, right?
1: That doesn't, you know, um, baffle and confound do not imply guile and deception.
0: Well, well, right, and Douglas claims that to baffle is to bewitch and to deceive. Douglas doesn't even know English. <laughs> this man's an English writer, right? He, he was a correspondent for the American Free Press. He has his own magazine. You'd think he knew English, right? Uh, I mean, or at least owned a dictionary. Uh, I don't think he owns a dictionary.
1: He had to pawn it to get money for marijuana.
0: Now, now baffle can also be to impede the force or movement of, and we had baffles on exhaust pipes and things like that,
1: right?
0: Right. It has has other definitions of a noun, but none of them are are, are tantamount to deception or or, or anything like that, to, to bewitch. No, that's not what baffle means.
1: He has to use the connotation of treachery, though, doesn't he? To make his point. He just can't come out and say these people were confused and they, they, they didn't expect to hear what they heard.
0: Well, well, right, but it's ridiculous to say that the word baffle or, or the word confound has a connotation of treachery. You know, the word by itself does not have that connotation. I, I could confuse you well, well, maybe I'm confused myself, but I'm not necessarily confusing you on purpose.
1: Right, so you raised some point about astrophysics, and I'm confused. It doesn't mean you're treacherously deceiving me.
0: Well, well right, and, and it's clear, from the, right from the account in Acts, it's very clear that the Judeans of Damascus were confounded or confused, having been expecting Paul's arrival to harass them, he rather arrives as one of them. He arrives as a christian and and they're saying, "Well, what happened to this guy and they had every right to say that so so they were confused and um in truth, paul was according to the according to the account that because if clayton doug if Clayton Douglas accepts one part of this account, he has to accept it all. This account being the only authority for these events. Yet you either take it or reject it at face value. If you accept half of it, unless you have another competing account, which you can show conflicts with this one, and that's of equal gravity or authority, then you can't only accept half of this account. You have to accept the whole thing. And according to the account, Paul was converted to Christianity by Christ on his way to Damascus, and, and that's why he was converted, and, and when the people of Damascus saw him converted, well, they, they wondered about it. They were confused.
1: Right, because he was the renowned persecutor.
0: Well, well it's odd here that Clayton Douglas makes a correct observation concerning the word Jews, since this is so late in his articles... And, and he's used the he's also already used the word very often himself, right? And and, and I, I I'm fairly certain this is the first time that that he makes a correct observation of, of, of this word that these people um
1: right. It's a bit late in the game to start discussing the. Correct context of the word and the deeper meaning and what it should really say.
0: Well, by where he says there were no people called Jews during this time period, right? And that's true that these people are Judeans, and they aren't all to be identified with the people known later in English as Jews. But but yeah, it's it's about twenty pages into his articles, and it's a little late for for him to come to that realization. Throughout Douglas's article he used the term Jew Jews, um, Jewish and, and used them indiscriminately, capitalized or not. We can move
1: on. All right. Reference sixty three, Douglas states, did you know that Jesus' own disciples were both afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a disciple, or don't you really care? Well, th- that's not even an argument. That's more of an accusation that if you don't agree with me, you don't care. And if you didn't know, you're ignorant. And who wants to be ignorant? So get on board with this stupid, lame point I'm making with no evidence.
0: Well, well right. <laughs> Douglas, is in, this argument is absolutely inane. It it comes directly from the account in Acts. Again, the account in Acts is his authority. And if he's using Acts to make a point, then he should accept the entire account because, again, there's no competing account with with which to um, revise this account or revise one's understanding of the events. If you accept parts of this account, you have to accept this account because it's the only account, or, or you reject the whole thing, and and again, Douglas is being hypocritical, accepting a portion of the account and then making a novel up, you know, to fit his agenda. the, the original disciples, of course, they were initially wary of Paul. They had every right to be initially wary of Paul, just like the people of Damascus were initially confounded or confused as to why Paul was suddenly preaching Christianity. He had been a persecutor only a short time before this. This is um, no secret, and, and, and it's, it, it's interwoven into the account of Acts itself. Paul both admitted and regretted his early actions persecuting Christians yet these same accounts to which Douglas refers and gets half of his story from tell us that in a short time all of Joshua's disciples did accept Paul and they accepted him fully and, and and that is also backed up by their epistles by the epistle of Peter for instance these um This is readily apparent in in the end of Acts chapter nine. Right here in Acts, we don't even have to leave Acts chapter nine to see that that where we are told that the Christians delivered Paul, the Christians delivered Paul from the unbelieving Jews in Acts chapter nine, where Paul was afterwards accepted by the disciples in Jerusalem. The unbelieving Jews in Damascus wanted to kill Paul right away. And, and the Christians of Damascus, who he formally persecuted, helped him escape from the city. It's uh, right there in Acts chapter 9.
1: Douglas will dispute the validity and claim that it's just Paul's self-serving propaganda.
0: Well, well, right, but if you're going to accept Acts chapter 9, you have to accept the whole chapter. You can't pick and choose. Um, otherwise, that- it's basically hypocrisy.
1: Well, that's what Douglas is doing. This sentence we're going to go with because it makes Paul look negative. Ooh, this sentence, we can't have that one. It makes him, it casts him in a positive light. This one, we can twist and distort and make him look bad with it. This sentence has to go. This one stays. This one goes. That's what he's doing. It's like a line item veto. You either take the whole thing or you, you, you reject the whole thing.
0: Right. Because it's the only authority for the matters being discussed, you have to accept the whole thing or reject the whole thing. In Acts chapters 14 and 15, we see that Paul was accepted at Antioch by the Christians there. Now, his teaching was challenged by certain Judaized um, Judaizers among the Pharisees. Yet, upon being heard by the elders of the disciples in Jerusalem in and, and Acts chapter 15, Paul was not only accepted by them, but his teaching was fully vindicated in Acts chapter 15. Now Clayton Douglas is basically a pawn and a patsy for Jews and 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 all kinds of sexual deviance and and basically he relates only part of Acts or, or any of the New Testament uh, which can be abused in order to uphold the positions of the Jews and the and the sexual deviance that that's what he's doing so, so uh, I mean it gets more ridiculous than this but that's basically what he's done
1: all right. Reference 64, Douglas states, the Dead Sea Scrolls show us that Damascus was the name of the Qumran community of Essenes. It was on his way to visit these revolutionaries that Paul claims to have been stopped by a vision. So now they're revolutionaries. Is there any evidence that the community in Damascus was a group of violent revolutionaries?
0: no, not in Damascus, right? That there is evidence in the Qumran scrolls that they were very. That the sect that created the scrolls first. There's no evidence they were Essenes. The evidence, and, and I've spelled it out here on several recent programs. The evidence is quite the contrary that they were not Essenes. When you actually sit and read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were not Essenes. Now, now the um. The sect that did create the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran sect is the proper name for them. The Qumran community would be a proper name for them. That Those people were vehemently anti-Roman, that they were, that there's no doubt. The war scroll is, is um, their writing. It's, their, it's peculiar to their sect, and it's vehemently anti-Roman. But that, that doesn't make them Essenes. And that sure as hell doesn't put them in Damascus. That This may be one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever seen concerning the geography of first century Palestine. It's so ludicrous. It's an absolute pity that it requires attention. Discussing the geography of Syria, Strabo says, the city of Damascus is also a noteworthy city, having been, I might almost say, even the most famous of the cities in that part of the world in the time of the Persian Empire, yeah you know Damascus was a prominent city, and it had been there for many centuries. Damascus is probably um, it, it, it very well could be the oldest city which is still functioning today as a city, even though i don 't know if the squat monsters that inhabit it really should count as um should count as a, as a city population. But no, Damascus was around in the time of Abraham.
1: Right, well, as have you noticed...
0: 4,000 years old, it's been in the same place and consistently inhabited for, for at least 4,000 years.
1: Have you noticed the leadership, the rulers of Syria, you know, like the Alawites, like Assad, they are the lightest-skinned people, and they they look a yeah, world apart...
0: Jews, too, but that's okay.
1: They look a world apart from all the, say, the Iraqis and the Saudis, who are, you know, literally short, brown, squat monsters. Well, well you not, know, not that I'm it's, saying there are white people in Syria. That there's no no way that's possible. But it seems just like in India, the the elite in society, the upper castes, are always the people who have the the most white ancestry, even though well, they're that's not white.
0: That, that's even the same among Negroes, even though they refuse to admit it. That that's the way it is. Light floats to the top. That's just the way it is. It, it's always been like that. Damascus was, was a prominent city in Syria, which had been there for, for, for two thousand years. Right, the city's first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter fourteen. It's still there today. Stabo wrote in twenty five A D, and and he was extolling the the, the fame of the city. It's, the, the name Damascus appears in Dead Sea Scrolls. It does. It's in the Genesis Apocryphon, But the name Damascus also appears several times in the document that by reason of the city's mention is popularly called the Damascus document. Just because there was a Damascus document among the Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't mean that the Qumran community was Damascus? That's ridiculous, and and that's basically what Clay Douglas is asserting here. Now, now the copies of the Damascus document found in Qumran are found in the fragments um, fra- fragments from both the fourth and fifth caves, two sixty six, two seventy three, five Q twelve, six, and sixth caves, six Q fifteen. But other copies of the Damascus document were found outside of Qumran. So we're very familiar with this document, right? And, and it's included in publications of the Dead Sea Scrolls because it's obviously copies of the same document. The other copies were discovered in Cairo, in Egypt. So there are actually two copies of what's called the Damascus document. And guess what? The other one's called the Cairo document, even though they're copies of the same document. That doesn't mean that Cairo is the name of the Qumran community, right? Or, 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 or by Douglas's logic, perhaps we should call Cairo Damascus in, instead of Qumran. But because we have a Damascus document that, has a, that contains a text, right? Well, we have a Cairo document that contains the same text.
1: And uh, I'm sure Paul's the bad guy in all those texts.
0: Well, well right. <laughs> now, there's nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls which link the scrolls to Qumran. Nothing. There's not not one word in the Dead Sea Scrolls as they have survived to us. Link the scrolls to Qumran. Except that they were found near Qumran. That's why they're called the Qumran Scrolls. That's why the community that that is perceived to have deposited them in these caves is called the Qumran community. Only because they were found near a place called Qumran. That's the only reason. There's no internal evidence in these scrolls, not one shred of evidence that links them to this place called Qumran, except that they were found nearby. Now, now if you went to a motel in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and found a, a Gideon Bible in the drawer, would you imagine yourself to be standing at the very place where, where Christ was born? No. Uh, I, mean, I mean, this is Douglas's reasoning. It's ridiculous. Uh, I would hope not. The, the logic of Douglas' um, statement of Damascus being found in documents in Qumran, so, so we'll relocate the name of this great city to Qumran, it's ridiculous. This guy's an idiot. Whoever wrote these articles sounds smart. Uh, I mean, a lot of people might fall for this garbage, but the, the guy that wrote this is an idiot.
1: Well, not only that, Bill, but as we've said, it's not just the guy that wrote this. It's the team. It's the clique. It's the little cabal of rabbis that sat around writing this. And at some point it occurred to one of them, oh, let's call in the question, the use of the word Jew, because that can be another stone we'll throw at Paul. And they did this now instead of 20 pages ago.
0: Well, Well, it's the little cabal of rabbis that sat around writing this, or who I think they are. That, then this is that Brother Nazariah clown in the Pacific Northwest that fancies himself an Essene. And, and I think he's actually related to, to the earlier sect of, of um, Joseph, Joseph Jeffers and, and Philip Evans and, and those turkeys that, 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 um, that think that Christ walked the earth in, in the times of, you know, 70 years before he did or 80 years before he did in the middle of the first century B.C., and and there's, there's a thousand other heresies with those clowns.
1: Well, Bill, how can they style themselves Essenes when we basically know virtually nothing about what the Essenes taught, what they believed, what their philosophy was, what their worldview, what their perspective on life? We don't know any of that. This is the equivalent of me claiming, you know, I follow the military training regime of the people of the sea, the same sea people who took down Egypt and Plagued the you know the the Near East for so many you know for so many decades so many centuries. I follow that training regimen. When we know virtually nothing about the people of the sea,
0: Well, well right, except for some certain inscriptions from Pharaoh Merneptah. The the um.
1: So when someone comes along claiming that they're an Essene, what they're basically doing is they're communicating that they're an idiot and a whack job.
0: Well, absolutely. Anybody who claims that they're in that scene is some kind of new age freak, and that's the bottom line. That the the hippies that that um that escaped Charles Manson in the California desert, that, you know that, that, that they're new age freaks, and 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 basically that they're um. Most of the Essenes I see online are, are New Age communists also. They're, they're no different than the 60s flower children, except that their language might be a little more sophisticated.
1: I should write a letter to Charles Manson. You know, um, dear Mr. Manson, can you vouch for these individuals that they say that they're tuned in and that they know about the world? What are you saying? He said, oh yeah, we used to hang together back on the ranch.
0: Well, well the problem is that people in... And, and the christians and and I, I really only care about identity Christians, but they listen to this stuff. they read this stuff and they think it's valid that they read this stuff and and it sounds good so so they run with it right it, it's, that this has polluted the minds of of many identity christians
1: well they have a problem, you know the dichotomy here they think that because so many universalist baal priest churches. Butcher and mistranslate and misuse Paul to promote universalism. They're just itching for something that will justify getting rid of Paul because they don't want universalism threatening their ideology. So when someone comes along and says, "Oh, here's how Paul's a, a no good creep, a criminal, a murderer, a Bolshevik, a torturer of women and children, Isn't and a that liar," what
0: about me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to throw that in. Isn't that what who? What do you like James says about me?
1: A no good murderer and a torturer.
0: Bi, and a criminal and a liar well, just,
1: and blah. Just as Paul never tried to hide his past from people, he was open that he was uh, an infamous persecutor of Christians. and Absolutely. You you did not come into this assembly in some sort of treacherous, deceitful fashion with a, a disguise, you know, a real long beard and a, a a pair of you know glasses with a mustache, saying you know my name is Bill, whatever. And but maybe you know, a
0: Roman Oregon's outfit, right?
1: You're you you're Bill October, and you've never been in prison for any violent crime. You were there for just some misunderstanding, receiving stolen goods, and. You, you, you were a guard, but there was a mishap. You were quite open and overt and honest and forthright about everything that happened.
0: Except that I don't agree with the, um, the, the government um, version of events that, that the New York Times reproduced. Right. Oh, okay. so, well, while, while the name Damascus appears often in the Damascus document, I'd rather get on with the material, sure. right? All right. But there is nothing which would lead us to believe that Damascus was a code word for Qumran. This is ridiculous. It's another. Douglas is just making this up. It's just invented. It's, it's the well known Syrian city, which it so obviously was. And Damascus in the Bible refers to nothing but the well known Syrian city, which was, which was such a prominent center of culture in Syria at the time. The, the Damascus document often refers to Israelites in the land of Damascus for one simple reason. It is relating the sect's perception of the fulfillment of prophecy as, as the sect saw it at Amos 527, where basically Yahweh tells the Israelites that he, he, they were going to be carried away beyond Damascus. That's the only reason why we see it in the sectarian writings is because they're basically referring to that prophecy. Now, further indication that Paul's Damascus was the city in Syria can be found in the New Testament itself. Paul's Damascus was a large place. It had streets. It had houses, Acts 9-11, right? And, And more than one synagogue or assembly of the Judeans, Acts 9.20, and it had walls and gates in Acts chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Qumran was nothing of the sort. Anybody who's ever actually read anything about Qumran, all of the archaeology of Qumran shows that the place was never more than a small compound, perhaps the size of a large Roman villa. That was it. That's all they found at Qumran is basically an old farmhouse. That's all they found there. It, it's not a large city. It doesn't have gates. It doesn't have walls. It, it doesn't have any of the amenities that you would expect a city to have. None had been found there. There are countless books and articles which describe this. It, it's it's. It's very well known, and anybody that studies the archaeology of the Middle East should be familiar with that. Otherwise, it's very attainable. Now, now Damascus has an ethnarch, two Corinthians eleven thirty-two, whom Paul mentions by name. Something we have not seen anywhere in the Qumran sex documents that this is just that this exposition has to be that this material has to be elucidated to see just how wrong. Douglas and these clowns that wrote these articles for him just how wrong they are because all of this can be ascertained and they're basically nothing but liars.
1: Well, they have to
0: be either total idiots or purposeful liars, one or the other.
1: Something there's no, has,
0: there's no other choice.
1: Something has occurred to me just looking at the way they structure their references and their points with the Well, let me go back to 63 real quick. Did you know that Jesus' own disciples were both afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a disciple, or don't you really care? And we see this again and again and again, this very confrontational, accusatory tone. Don't you care? Don't you know? Didn't you know? Or um, do you believe Paul or Jesus? Since when did Paul become your God? This very in-your-face, putting-you-on-the-spot sort of tone And it's a form of psychological manipulation. It's like when the left says, do you support the um, Violence Against Women Act, or are you a rapist? Or when when an attorney asks, so, sir, are you still beating your wife? There's no correct answer. You're sunk however you answer it. So when people look at this, or don't you really care? Well, no one's going to come out and say they don't really care. They don't want to sound like they're an idiot, that they're ignorant, they're unsophisticated. So they're going to have a knee-jerk reaction and immediately agree with the statement out of fear of being considered ignorant or malicious because nobody would support somebody who Jesus' disciples did not support. So Clay Douglas, or whoever wrote this, he makes a statement counting on psychological manipulation to get people to immediately agree with that out of fear. He's basically terrorizing and manipulating them into agreeing with statements that if they were worded differently and the people didn't have this confrontational mentality when they read the statement, they would step back, logic would take over, they would read through this and say, well, wait a minute, there's no evidence here that the other apostles, the other disciples were afraid of him. He's just claiming they're afraid of him, but he's not proving they were afraid of him. So whoever wrote this, knows a thing or two about psychology and manipulation. He's not just some bumpkin off the street or some, you know, dope smoker up in the mountains. So I I, I, I do get the idea. Douglas did not write this, and whoever is the actual author or in, in the little clique, the little team of authors, there is a psychologist or a psychiatrist or somebody that's, you know, at least done an undergrad in psychology. They, they well, know how well, to manipulate it.
0: Pretty Jewish to me.
1: Absolutely. Well, they, we they know post- what they're. I just to say um, they know what they're doing.
0: Okay, I, I mean that's your assessment, and, and it very well um, may be valid. I, I, I don't. Yeah, you know, I see your point that they're actually attempting to coerce people into accepting these these false testimonies, and, and um, but really. Um, make them feel belittled that they don't, it, it, it basically forces you to accept their testimony unless you're um, certain in, in your knowledge and can refute them effectively.
1: Right. Where, when you, know, you write an article in the Saxon Messenger, you don't beat people over the head and tell them you must conclude this. You present the evidence, you present what your conclusions are, and you guide them in that direction, but you don't beat them over the head and tell them they're bad people if they don't conclude exactly what you want them to conclude. And that's exactly, what, that's exactly what's going on here. All right. Reference 65. Clayton Douglas states To the mystics, prophets, and revolutionaries of that day, Paul's vision seemed as nothing more than a cop out for why he was claiming his Romanized message to be in line with the clearly anti Roman teachings of Jesus. Wait a minute. Paul now has a Romanized message, despite the fact that he's an agent of the
0: Pharisees.
1: (laughs) This doesn't make sense.
0: It's just a sense and he's a centurion again.
1: um, Paul's a Bolshevik who hates the Romans, so he hated them enough to desert them, but now he's preaching a Romanized message.
0: Well, well, the things that Paul was teaching at this time were absolutely contrary to, to, um, to Rome, to pagan Rome. There was no Roman Catholic Rome. There was no Roman Catholic Rome at this time, Clayton Douglas. There's, um, I don't think he realizes that. Maybe he thinks they had a pope before Christ. I don't know. I don't know. To call Paul's message Romanized is is quite ridiculous. If Paul's message was Romanized, he would have um, fashioned Christ as Jupiter or Pluto or. Or, or saturn or i'm i'm kidding about pluto right or or saturn or or mercury or hermes or one of them it, it it mercury is hermes um it doesn't matter it it's the to call paul's message romanized is ridiculous yeah you know as for subjects and as for mystics mystics and revolutionaries i cannot comment except to say that Clayton Douglas is preoccupied with magic and magicians, isn't he? I mean, he quotes—he quoted several of them from the very beginning of these Paul Bashing articles. He's also fascinated by revolutionaries, and and he is so often. And his articles put his lot with men such as um, Friedrich, God is Dead, Nietzsche, and, and who ended up in an insane asylum at age 45. And, and Bishop John S. Spong, there was a revolutionary. He was indeed a revolutionary. He was at the vanguard of the integrationist civil rights movement. He was the first Episcopalian bishop to ordain sexually deviant men as ministers. And, and, and he was a chorus leader for the acceptance of homosexual marriage. These are the revolutionaries Clayton Douglas loves. He, he, he's um, entranced by mystics and revolutionaries. And, and he's accusing Paul uh, of um, well, well, being a mystic. In a, you know, he, he, he's accusing Paul with the words of the mystics and revolutionaries of Paul's day, but, but he can't cite any books.
1: We've already satisfactorily shown that Paul was actually an ultra-conservative, a member of the Pharisaical priesthood, And that was basically the order at the time that wanted to maintain the traditions in Judea. So Paul thought he was defending his faith by opposing this New Age, upstart Christian cult.
0: Well, well, basically that was Paul's attitude at the first. He he thought that he was defending the status quo and and the traditions of of his religion as he understood it at the time. And today we see plenty of Judeo-Christians do the same thing. Even though we know they're dead wrong and and what they're teaching is not traditional Christianity at all, right? Paul was in the same position. He was the the Judeo-Hebrew of of his day. If Paul's message were Romanized, would Paul have been imprisoned at Rome and executed by Nero? Why would Rome hold prisoner and kill such an ally? I don't get it. Why would Rome execute such a supposedly faithful agent, which Clayton Douglas claims that Paul was? And and Christ wasn't anti-Roman. How was Christ anti-Roman? If Christ were anti-Roman, how could Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, insist on letting Christ go free, finding no fault with him? John chapter nineteen verses six, verses four, six, and twelve. So, so Clayton Douglas again is deceiving his audience, or he's an idiot. He's one or the other. He has to be. Now, now, now you suspect that they're not idiots, so they have to be purposeful deceivers.
1: Right. Well, they've shown they know enough about Scripture to twist it, to omit certain verses. You know, they'll they'll go on, they'll list this, 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 but then they'll stop abruptly and it's not just because of it. it's some it's mistake and they forgot to include the next verse. The next verse doesn't go along with what they want to show. So th- these people have at least, they, they have a passing knowledge of the Bible, and they know enough to deceive and to lead good, intentioned, decent people in our faith community down a dead-end road. So th- that's why I'm saying I-, I can't accept the idea that they're just idiots. They're They're deceivers and they're treacherous. But they're only idiots in the sense that they haven't done enough homework to make it an even better deception. Their deception is transparent to individuals such as ourselves, but it's not transparent to everyone or else we wouldn't have to be here doing the series.
0: Well, well, absolutely. I have to agree with that. that the yeah um, you know I, I, I want to mention this while, while it's written in the paper, but I also want to mention it <clears throat> that the um, beginning of the series. We demonstrated that Paul and Christ himself could not have been anti-Roman. But because the, the, um, the, the, the beast, the series of world empires ruling over the sons of man, as Daniel puts it in, in um, Daniel chapter 4, Wheresoever, maybe, perhaps that's Daniel chapter 2, wheresoever the children of Adam dwell. That series of empires was ordained by God. And in order to um, be anti Roman, as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 13, in order to resist the power and authority of that series of empires, one would set himself in opposition to the will of God. Christ was not anti-Roman. Christ said, "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, so that you could render unto God what is God's." And and, and that's what Christ taught. Christ told Pilate, "You would have no power over me unless it were given to you from heaven above, from God." So so Christ exceeded to Pilate's authority over him because that authority was given by God. And Christ understood that and Paul understood that. They weren't anti-Roman at all. There's not one anti-Roman word in the Gospels of Christ. In fact, he even healed the centurion's servant.
1: Absolutely.
0: Tyrannical but, government was ordained by God. Right. And it, set, it, it was set to, to a time period, and there's no getting out from under the, the, the word of God concerning that government. Period. So,
1: Douglas will not grant that Christ was not some radical anti-Roman revolutionary, even though he healed the centurion's servant, and even though the centurion during the crucifixion, said surely this man was the son of God, yet there are people out there who say, oh, he healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman, so now we can make a new doctrine based on that. And suddenly we have the gospel of Canaanite salvation.
0: (laughs) Right, which is absolutely ridiculous. And unscriptural. We can move on.
1: Reference 66. Douglas states, Many valid and initiated Nazarenes, including Jesus' own brother, did not believe Paul. The debate between James, the head of the Nazarenes, after Jesus' resurrection, and Paul is depicted throughout many of the books of the New Testament, as well as other historically valid writing that didn't make the Council of Nicaea's cut in 325 C.E., now, I, I wonder,
0: well,
1: I <laughs> right, right off the bat, only a Jew would have to write CE because he's unable to bring himself to write AD because it's not the year of our God, because it's our God, not his God.
0: Right. They, and, they can't write AD. AD is Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. They can't right. write that.
1: They can't bring themselves to write it, which is, it's rather telling that they would write C.E. They're claiming they're an authority on religion, yet they can't even write A.D. And also, the, um, the Nazarenes, how, how does one get initiated and become a Nazarene? Is there a, is there a code that they recorded that here's the secret handshake, we um, tap you on the back three times and boom, you're a Nazarene? So, what does Douglas mean when he says "valid and initiated Nazarenes"? Well, what makes well, sense? well
0: I'll tell you what he means, I'll tell you what he means, and I I explained this last night in my Acts chapter two presentation. This word Nazarene, right? The the the, the Judeans, the disbelieving Judeans. Let's call them Jews. The Jews, Acts chapter twenty four, verse five, called Paul the leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. They called him that. Because at that time, the Jews would not use the word Christ in reference to Yahshua Christ. They would not use the word Christians in reference to his followers. Because if they used the word, they were making an admission, in fact, of, of the meaning that the word carries. If they call Jesus Christ, they're admitting he's the Messiah by their use of the label. Men took their words seriously at that time. We don't take our words seriously today, right? Today we treat our words like garbage. It's a shame. It's a damnable shame that our society is like that. Our words are cheap to men today. We have the Jewish media and... and, and um, Educational system, the Judaized educational system to thank for that. At this time, men took their words seriously. If I called you a Christian, then I was basically admitting that you were a follower of the Messiah. And that means that I'm admitting that the Messiah was here, and the Jews refused to admit that Christ was, that Joshua was the Messiah. So they would not use the term Christian, they would call him a Nazarene. Here, this writer. Calling the Christians Nazarenes is basically not calling them Christians. He's avoiding calling them Christians, right? And and then using C-E instead of A-D, the guy that wrote this is a Jew. There's no doubt. I I mean,
1: it's written all over
0: his paragraph.
1: I don't think once the author has ever used the word Yahweh, has he?
0: Um, No, I don't think they they used the term Yahweh here.
1: And it's always Esu, Emmanuel, the Lord, Jesus, uh, occasionally. They just can't bring themselves to say Yahshua, and they can't bring themselves to say Yahweh. And they can't bring themselves well, right. to write A.D. these
0: other esoteric terms in, in order to substitute for that. Right, and right. We're, we're, and
1: he, he, he told us, my name will cause dread among the heathen.
0: It, it basically depends on which of the writers, because as you point out many times, there appear to be several of them working on this article, What which of the writers this was copied from.
1: Right, but if you're writing a theological, scholarly article, you're not going to shy away from A.D. It's just little things like these that they're probably counting on the audience not picking up on it, but I just feel it's necessary that each of these little things, we point them out.
0: Well, well, it's pretty. Blatant. It should be pretty blatant and pretty obvious to any Christian that reads this that use of this of the CE it is um, favored by the Jews. That there are some so called Gentile academics that do use CE now in in their journals. I mean, it's pretty popular in in most journals and archaeology journals today, and and um, I, haven't, I don't read any theological writing from the mainstream, so I wouldn't know about that. But, but um, CE is very common in, in science and archaeological journals today, and, and it's actually prevalent. I have seen AD in certain articles written by Christians, but, but it's usually CE. But, but that's besides the point. This material was written by someone who, who's supposedly a Christian, and they're using CE, and, and that's absurd.
1: This material was written by someone who's contrary to God and who hates the Bible.
0: Well, well right—that's more more the truth in the matter. Well, we've already seen earlier in in, in this series that Douglas invents a debate between James and Paul, a debate which never existed. Douglas cites James one twenty six, James chapter three, verses five through six, and asserts that James was referring to Paul. And that's an assertion which is certainly proven false upon reading those verses in context. I I, I don't know if I, I, I should probably go and um and read the verses that that Douglas cites, James one twenty six. If one supposes to be religious, not guiding his tongue with the bridle, but deceiving his heart. His religion is vain. That now the King James Bible um, treats that pronoun more emphatically, and it's not incorrect. They write, "If any man among you," that now, now James is is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and that among you is in the it's in the majority text that word, but it's not it, it's not in in the better manuscripts. However. If any man among you, or if any man, period, seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, that that certainly can't, well, well, that can be applied to anybody in in particular at any time, but that certainly is not a comment aimed at Paul of Tarsus. There's absolutely nothing in the context here that, that indicates that James is talking about Paul of Tarsus, he's basically talking to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and saying, if any man among you, if one from among you, anybody who who speaks loosely among you. But, well, could that mean Paul of Tarsus? I'd say about there's a one in 12 million shot that it means Paul of Tarsus at any given time. It could mean any one of us at any given time. It's ridiculous to say, oh, James is talking about Paul there. That's absolute subterfuge. It's absolute subterfuge. Now, now James talks about the tongue again and the trouble it causes in in James three verses five and six, and that's also general comments that aren't aimed at any particular individual. So, so Douglas, it, this is um, that this is actually false accusations, which Douglas is taking things out of comments from James' epistles and, and say, oh, this applies to Paul. So, so you could do that to any book and, and apply it to anyone, right? And, and because you make the contention that makes it true? Of course not. It's ridiculous. As far as, 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 far as this debate being depicted throughout many books of, of the, the New Testament, this is what Douglas is claiming here, that this is a claim that Douglas certainly could not establish if he were challenged. It's, it's ridiculous. It's a lie. It's a blatant lie. It, it's, um, notice again that Douglas, he, he says these things, but he never makes any citations. He never makes one citation to support his claims. And, and, and then he supports his claim further by, by referring to unnamed apocryphal books, making no citations there either, as if he actually read those books, right? I'll bet he's never read an apocryphal book. I can only deduce from one thing from all of these unsubstantiated claims of, of this article is that it's purposeful lying. If it weren't lying, there would be citations. There was certainly no debate between James and Paul. There was never a debate between James and Paul. There was one apparent point of contention between James and Paul. And in our meager records, and one short epistle of James, that's all we have is one epistle from James. That's the only writing of his we have, and some statements which Luke recorded in Acts. This point, the one point of contention between James and Paul is never debated, and it's never discussed at length. And that point of contention is that apparently James was convinced in, in, and this is evident in Acts chapter 21, that men born into Judaism and their children should continue to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. That was James's attitude. It's reflected in Acts chapter 21 from verses 20 to 24. And Paul would disagree with that. Yet Paul, the apostle to the non-Judeans, right, the apostle to the nations, taught that those Christians of the nations, the nations of dispersed Israel, who were no longer practicing Judaism and had not done so for quite some time and were not born into Judaism, were not to be burdened by those things. And, and we could see that in Acts chapter 21, verse 25, and in Acts chapter 15, read the entire chapter, and you'll clearly see that. So if if, if this is so, then I must assert that the Christian has to side with Paul on this issue. Upon inspecting the prophets, Jeremiah tells us that with the New Covenant, both those of the house of Israel and the house of Judah would have the laws written into their hearts. It's not ambiguous. It's a direct statement relating to both the law and the New Covenant. I'm going to, to expound on this at length in my upcoming presentation, Yahweh willing, of Acts chapter 21 and, and Acts chapter 15. But when I get to them in, in my ongoing present, um, my, my current presentation of the book of Acts, the, the, um, how could a man follow two different sets of laws? We follow the laws written on the paper and, and, and in, in, in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, or we follow the... Um, the laws written in our hearts, which Jeremiah explicitly prophesies. They
1: have to be the same law.
0: Well, well, right. Man can't worship, can't follow two different sets of laws. It's not possible. Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us that Israel and Judah shall no longer be two nations, but shall be one and have one king and shall not be divided anymore. So so I think that the, the record in Acts reflects that James was wrong. And there's reasons for that. And I will get into them in depth when I discuss Acts chapter 20. And um, that, that's just the way it is, right? It, it's, it's there in the record for everybody to read Acts chapter 20. James basically recommended that to Paul. He defended the law and the prophets and the, the circumcision in front of Paul. And basically James seems towards the end of his life to, to have sided with the Judaizers, who surrounded him in Jerusalem, by his own admission, Acts chapter twenty-one, and I'm going to talk about this at length, at great length when I present that chapter, that the um, the, the prophets Ezekiel, Judah, and Israel being one stick the New Covenant being made with both Judah and Israel and Jeremiah, there's no room in the prophecies concerning Judah and Israel for two classes, two distinct classes of people under Christ. There's no room for it. it it's it, it's um, the, the law in our hearts or, or the law in the Pentateuch, it, it's, you know, Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, and we have those, and, and of course we should keep them, and of course we should aspire to the law as a model of, of our behavior, but we're not going to be judged by it. it. It's a whole long conversation. It's not black and white, and I can't explain it in a five-minute soundbite, but it's clear that Israel and Judah would have had the same law, and that's the law written in their hearts in, in, as a matter of New Testament prophecy. In Jeremiah chapter 31.
1: So today when the evangelicals spiritualize Israel and talk about how it's a, the, the church is Israel and the Jews still have their own law, their own path, their own everything, they really don't have a clue what they're talking about. The, aren't well, no well they don't have the a clue what
0: they're talking about because Christ says nobody gets to the Father except through me.
1: Right, <laughs> so the, the Jews do have their own path that just doesn't lead anywhere any of us want to go.
0: It leads right to the lake of fire, and 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 they're on that path, and, and they can't possibly get off it.
1: Right. Well, he told them, "Where I go, you cannot follow." He didn't say, "Will not follow." And there's a there's a slight distinction. If I say, "You will not succeed," that might mean to say that because of your plan being flawed, you will not succeed. If I say, "You cannot succeed." It's, it implies there's a connotation of impossibility, that no matter what you do, it cannot work. And I'm sure Douglas is okay with them having their own little path to salvation. And he thinks it's quaint that they're waiting for the Messiah.
0: Well, well that's, the, that, that's the, um, the Jewish mindset that the Jews, well, well it's not really their mindset, but, but what they've taught to the world through, through the corruptions of the world's religion, is, is basically ecumenism and the idea that God accepts us all and we all have our own path to God. So, so it's not just two, it, it's whatever path you, you happen to choose.
1: Right. Well, I had a, a Jewess come right out and tell me, we don't need your Jesus, we don't want your Jesus, the rabbis are our Messiah. She, she explicitly yeah. told me that.
0: Well, well, right. They do believe that. Well, well, there's different sects of Judaism that believe that different things, but, but some sects believe that the Jewish people in general are the wrong Messiah. That they don't believe in 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 a a Messiah as a manifestation of God on Earth, which is the Old Testament Messiah.
1: Right, and then Douglas will quote people like John Spong, who believe theism is dead and that salvation is irrelevant. And he he considers that a reputable source. So he he quotes magicians, socialists, universalists, deviants, and perverts.
0: Well, well right, and, and then he and and then he wants to grouse about the law. which is absolutely hypocritical. He's quoting John Spong. And, and, and he's complaining that, that, that Paul somehow forsook the law of God. And he's quoting this damned, that is, that, and I'm going to call him damned, that this damned sexual deviant, and grousing that Paul is forsaking the law of God. And, oh. and that James and Paul are arguing about it as he quotes John Spong.
1: I, I can't help but conclude that John Spong is a lawless beast, and Clay Douglas is a lawless beast. And how dare such vermin as they throw stones at Paul and claim that Paul promotes lawlessness?
0: Well, well you know, Graeber also quoted George Bernard Shaw
1: and, and,
0: and um, Taylor Caldwell and um, Frederick Nietzsche and, and, and all of these antichrists, Graeber also quoted in, right, well, in his fashion.
1: Graeber was sort of the bottom of the barrel of the Paul Bashers. He couldn't even go about constructing a convincing deception because his tendency for quoting creeps and deviants.
0: Well well, right, but Graeber was also supposed to be Christian identity.
1: Right wow. so, so that's
0: that that's the, the, the key there, right? Well, and
1: he he was absolutely <laughs> horrible. We, we it, know uh, Doctor Graeber, maybe he maybe that's not even his real name. Right. All right.
0: We can uh, move on to the next reference.
1: Reference 67, Clay Douglas states, In the Dead Sea Scrolls, Paul is referred to simply as the liar, for in truth he claimed that nearly every traditional facet of the Nazarene way of life, those practices of the Nazarite oath in particular, were invalid, while Jesus stated that he taught the spirit of the Old Testament. Paul completely mocked and ridiculed the Torah time and time again, but you still think of Paul as a good guy, correct? You are, of course, welcome to continue on with your traditions. You can do exactly that, even though the onus has now been placed on you. So here again, more of this psychological manipulation, treacherously coercing people into accepting horrible arguments out of guilt. So, just to be clear on this, Paul is the liar in a document written at least five or six centuries before Paul was even born. And Paul completely mocked everything that the Torah stood for and that the Torah was teaching, despite the fact that he was a Pharisee. And the Dead Sea Scrolls address how to live your life in accordance with Jesus' teachings, yet they were written 600 years before he was born. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around all this.
0: It, it's um well well the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't really written 600 years before Christ was born but they were probably written before Christ was crucified. All it's, right, uh, there's no doubt. They're, they're definitely not Christian. There's nothing Christian at all about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls knew nothing about Christ.
1: Right, but to call Paul the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh yes, the liar, the liar of the Dead
0: Sea Scrolls did exist. Uh, in the context in which the Peshers mention the liar, the lyre of the Dead Sea Scrolls did exist 600 years before Paul was born. I'm sorry.
1: Right, that, that's what I meant by the, the 600. And the 1,000
0: years, because the lyre was also around in the days of David and in the days of Micah, right? So, so the lyre was as old as Methuselah, maybe.
1: Right, and we know that... Paul is not as old as Methuselah, or that would have been noteworthy and everyone would have mentioned it.
0: The liar in the Dead Sea Scrolls is really simply an epithet. But for that race of people, it's always been opposed to God all through time. It's always managed to infiltrate our societies and deceive and mislead our people. Just as Jude wrote and Peter wrote that there were false prophets among the people referring to ancient Israel.
1: Can I it, guess which race of people we're referring to?
0: Well, well, if you really need to, uh, I think most of the people listening to this will know that we're talking about the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Edomites, and, and that they're all related.
1: Darn, I thought we were talking about the Swiss. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just kidding. I was going to say I, I need three guesses, and the first two don't count. <laughs>
0: Well, well it's, it's been established here in much detail earlier in this series that the liar of the Dead Sea scroll certainly could not have been Paul of Tarsus, but for the reasons we just mentioned and, and others. Yet, yet here, Douglas confuses several other disparate facts facets of, of biblical history which must be addressed. Evidently, Douglas believes that the Qumran sect, which is an appropriate name for whoever it was that, that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, were not only Christians, but also that they took the ancient Nazarite vows, which are described in Numbers chapter 6. And, and it's easy to see that the Nazarite vows were not taken by the Qumran sect. You know, Douglas is, whoever wrote this is, craftily confusing that word Nazarite in the Old Testament with the word Nazarene used of Christ in the New Testament. And those terms should not be confused. I went into great detail about that last night in my presentation on Acts chapter 2, that the... um, the, the Nazarite vows were not taken by the Qumran sect, and, and that can be proven because the Nazarite vows include these instructions found in number 16. He, meaning the Nazarite, shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. In the Dead Sea Strolls, in The scroll, which is labeled 1Q, meaning it was found in the first cave at Qumran, rule of the congregation. That's the name of the scroll, rule of the congregation, right? Its technical label is 1Q28A, column two. We read, and I quote, and when they gather at a table of community or to drink the new wine, that's a direct violation of the Nazarite vows, I would say, right? and the table of the community is prepared, and the new wine is mixed for drinking, no one should stretch out his hand to the first fruit of the bread and of the new wine before the priest. For he is the one who blesses the first fruit of the bread and of the new wine and stretches out his hand towards the bread before them. So so, so there we have it. There are several other places that show that the Qumran sect indeed drank wine. The members of the Qumran sect certainly could not have taken the vows of the Nazarite in Numbers chapter six. Again, Clayton Douglas or whoever wrote this article is found to be a liar and, and is a speller of lies. And 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 that that's absolutely clear. Simply read the Dead Sea Scrolls and and read the vows of the Nazarite. One doesn't have to look far to see that the disciples of Christ certainly drank wine. John chapter 2, Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22. And so they could not have taken the vows of the Nazarite. Even if it was grape juice, they could not have taken the vows of the Nazarite because the vows of the Nazarite prohibit those men who were set aside for that priesthood from any fruit or any liquor or any liquid at all made from grapes, and they were prohibited from eating grapes moist or dry. So they couldn't, the Nazarites of the Old Testament, couldn't even drink grape juice without breaking their vows. So, so while it's true that the early Christians were called Nazarenes, which is only evident in the New Testament, quite ironically, the Jews accuse Paul at Acts chapter 24, verse 5, and, and, and where they accuse him, this name came because they were followers of Joshua of Nazareth. That's why they were called Nazarenes, not because they took the Nazarite vows. If they took the Nazarite vows, they're hypocrites because they obviously broke them. They did not take the Nazarite vows. Douglas is the hypocrite. It, it's, it's very clear without having to go far into the Bible at all. It, it's um. The Jews refused to call, as I've already explained here, they refused to call the followers of Christ Christians, so they called them the sect of the Nazarenes. It's that simple, but that has nothing to do with the term Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. In the Septuagint, that term Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6 what was basically um, translated as sanctified ones.
1: So you mean like Samson who took the oath of a Nazarite? Right. Part so, so it, details, you know, so not, not, not cutting your hair, not drinking wine, not having anything that was fermented or had anything to do with grapes even.
0: Now, now we've discussed quite at, at length in this series Paul's position on, on the Levitical law. It was also discussed in, in answer to um, to Graeber's accusations of Paul. Douglas states that Paul completely mocked and ridiculed the Torah time and time again, and as usual, he offers nothing of substance but a vain and hollow accusation.
1: Well, no know, citations.
0: No, it, no it, specific if, examples, just a blanket accusation.
1: If Paul had mocked and ridiculed the Torah time and time again... And there were dozens of examples, Douglas or Nazariah or whatever freak, whatever clown wrote this, they would pull out at least several of them or at least direct the readers there because they would, they would love that. Because right now they're grasping at straws. They have nothing. And if they actually had anything, they would run with it.
0: No doubt. If they, if they had anything, that they certainly would include it. That there should be no doubt. But they have nothing that they make blanket accusations and and no citations. It's incredible. It, it's the pattern that has been set throughout these articles, and it's incredible that anybody could possibly uh, follow anything like this from any of the Paul bashers. I haven't seen I haven't seen any honest interpretation of scripture or, or honest interpretation of history from any of the Paul bashers. And again, I challenge them. If they think they have an accusation against Paul of Tarsus that can actually stick, I challenge them to send it to me, and I'll address it on his program. It's that simple. If they have an accusation against Paul of Tarsus that can actually stick, I beg them to send it to me, I'll address it on his program.
1: I accuse Paul of having been a Pharisee, and I accuse him of having been mortal because he died in the end. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, it, it's incredible, and it's uh, all of this Paul bashing material, all of the Paul bashing material. I, I even the Paul bashing material from 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 my uh, a man who was once a dear friend of mine, Ralph Daigle, which was um, and and Ralph was sincere. He was sincere, but he could never come up with anything that actually stuck. Once you read the Greek, what once you understood. The scripture in context and in, in, in the con- in the biblical context, it, it none of it sticks. Once you understand the history, the culture of the time, none of it sticks. It, it's all it, it's all vain, it's distracting, and it's destructive. Because Paul Paul of Tarsus was history's first Christian identity pastor. I have an entire podcast on Christogenia. From from a presentation I did at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People last year, uh, I would challenge any Paul Basher to go listen to that podcast and 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 tell me that I'm wrong. I would challenge any of them to go listen to that podcast and and come try to refute it. And and, and if your if your refutation If your refutation is valid from history and scripture, I'll take the podcast down off my site and apologize. But there's nothing in that podcast that can be be refuted from history and scripture. Paul of Tarsus was Christianity's first identity pastor. He was going to all of these places teaching them correctly that they were indeed the, the ancient dispersion of the children of Israel. And he knew it, and he knew why, and it was Paul of Tarsus that made the Christian gospel stick to the people who were its intended recipients, and, and that could only come from the hand of God.
1: Absolutely. Reference
0: 68? No, we'll we'll leave it at this for tonight, and, and I'll see you here next week. We're, we're going to give this Paul-bashing stuff a break for a couple of weeks. Next week we're going to discuss my, my, my recent essay on the Saxon Messenger, that the um, the wicked black gentry,
1: right.
0: the, the Jews of colonial America, basically.
1: What if, what if someone wants to issue a refutation of your podcast and their main theory is that they can just attack you and defame you and call you a murderer and say, oh, you're a murderer just like Paul was a murderer. I mean,
0: well, well right, but that's that. That sounds like um, some of those other Christian identity universalists that that can't debate scripture, but they, they so so they attack my person and my past and and try to defame me. That the um the pagans do the same thing, that those clowns at renegade broadcasting and places like that, they do the same thing. That they can't debate me, they can't face me like men and have an honest discussion of our culture and history. So so they that they resort to defamation and ad hominem attacks just like the Christian Identity Universalists. It's
1: all they no, that, that's certainly method.
0: They don't have a leg to stand on. That, that's okay. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to keep plugging along and doing what I do, and, and um, that that they certainly don't intimidate me. And, and Christogenia is, I'm, I'm not going to brag, but Christogenia is standing in the top quarter, quarter million sites in the world for a long time now and it's the only Christian identity site that's ever made it there and stayed. 2,500 podcasts a day are being downloaded from my website this month. Praise Yahweh.
1: Absolutely. Praise Yahweh. Next week then.
0: Thank you for joining me. I will be here next Friday night with my third attempt to finish Acts chapter 2. I'll actually present Acts chapter 2, the balance of it, and a recap of what what we've discussed so far, and hopefully also finish. I hate to say it because I don't know. Hopefully also finish Acts chapter three next week, and and we'll be here next Saturday night with the evil or the wicked black gentry that the Jews in colonial America are in a discussion of them.
1: Pray, shall we? Thank you for listening. Thanks, Brian.